Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffat, and myself, along with our guest, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Welcome back to the TeamCast. My name is Dr. Preston Klein, and today, in partnership with two of my dear friends who happen to be recognized experts in their field of neuroscience and emergency medicine, we will use a medical scenario to discuss our learning diagnostic tool, which we call the DR5, which stands for Detection, Recognition, Reaction, Response, Reset, and Reflection. This is a tool that is currently used by numerous instructor cadres around the world to better understand the underlying learning processes involved in navigating immersion events. Today, I am joined by Dr. Elizabeth Zab Johnson, a leading neuroscientist who is currently the executive director and senior fellow at the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative. Prior to that, she was a faculty at the Duke University Neurobiological Department. We are also joined by Dr. L.A. Alvarez, assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine, as well as acting as the assistant program director in their emergency medicine residency program, which means that part of his job is helping medical residents learn their jobs. Before we begin, it might be helpful to understand a little more about the model and how it was developed. As many of you know, my doctoral research on mission-critical teams began around 2010 in what is called a shoot-house while observing U.S. Special Operations teams practice hostage rescue. I was there to learn about how elite teams help operators develop the ability to more successfully and sustainably navigate both uncertainty and rapidly emergent complex adaptive problem sets. Instead, what I encountered what we now what we now call the tacit knowledge transfer problem it is pre it presented itself in the form of a very large instructor yelling to a candidate that they sucked and that they should suck less. When you get past the fact that the candidate was probably already aware of those two observations, you are confronted with a simple truth: the instructor wasn't wrong. The instructor knew the candidate was not behaving in a way that looked or sounded or felt right based on their years of experience. The problem was that the instructor did not have a sufficient language to articulate those observations in a way the candidate could hear them. It is the difference between learning how, knowing how to ride a bike and explaining it to someone else. It's two very distinct skills. It was out of this problem which we originally developed the learning event review process, or R4, in 2017, in partnership with the instructor cadre of Naval Special Warfare and the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative. We updated it in 2019 and re-released it to the instructor cadres around the world as the DR4, which is now being used worldwide. The impetus behind this current update, like many changes these days, was COVID-19. In working with mission-critical medical teams, I once again came across the tacit knowledge transfer problem, but unlike the training environments of military and law enforcement, this was in a surgical theater with a live patient. In order to understand the problem, you need to understand that everyone has a first day, even surgeons. And this first day problem really matters more and more as the speed and complexity of the world we live in grows. This means that somewhere right now, there is a patient who has been rushed to the hospital and is in the process of dying. 
Their family waits anxiously in the waiting room, praying they will be all right. But on this day, the day that that person is laying on the table, the person who is picking up the scalpel to save their lives, hopefully, is not the attending physician, not the experienced trauma surgeon, but the resident who has just completed their medical course coursework and must now put all of that knowledge into practice. So here's the question. Imagine for a moment that you are the attending physician. You have only a few minutes to say something to the resident that will help them distill all the knowledge accumulated after years of study into action to get their wrists and their fingers and their elbows to move the way their brain wants them to move and to do so in a way that helps the patient. This is action which may change the course of the person's life and the resident's life. What would you say? There you are. You're the experienced surgeon. You've only got a few moments before the surgery begins. What do you say to that resident? This is where the tacit knowledge transfer problem really comes to a point. And the way we at the Mission Critical Team Institute have decided to answer this question is by first understanding what the human brain is doing in that situation and finding ways to leverage that knowledge to improve performance and to accelerate the applied learning leading up to that moment. The DR5 is a learning diagnostic tool, not a decision-making tool, to help make decisions in the moment. It was designed to help instructor cadres better understand, identify, diagnose, and affect the learning happening within the immersion event to make everyone a little bit better. Those 300 seconds or less where your actions will determine whether the situation improves or declines. If your job is to help people learn how to navigate those immersion events more successfully, you want to find ways for people to get better at their craft every day. We are releasing the latest version of the DR5, which you can find in the show notes of this TeamCast, in anticipation of the first high-performance resuscitation team summit, which will be held in Chicago, October 21st of this year. It is being jointly sponsored by the Mayo Clinic, the Stanford Department of Emergency Medicine, and the Mission Critical Team Institute. To this end, we'll be using a trauma resuscitation scenario to break down the DR5 in this TeamCast. By having LA break down the components of the immersion event, we can see in real time what is happening both clinically to the patient and to the medical team. We will then pause so Zab can help us deconstruct what is happening within those operators' brains. How are they learning? What are they looking for and why? To help us understand the processes that humans go through when navigating these critical immersion events and where they have to make a series of critical decisions, behaviors, and moments in a proper sequence while operating in a networked environment, working collaboratively with other team members in a technical ecosystem to achieve the optimal outcome. With that as the preamble, I will now ask my co-hosts to introduce themselves and address anything I might have missed. Zab, let's start with you. Hi, Preston and everyone in the audience. It's fantastic to be here. Um, I think Preston laid out the groundwork and LA and I have a have no joke to, <laughs> to try and uh, uncouple all of this from the practicalities all the way through to the brain's way of, of capturing these complex environments. I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. And LA? Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Preston. And I'm uh, super excited to be here with Zab uh, as we discuss how and actually dissect the processes that uh, happen in the emergency department every single day, several times a day, and uh, going from one patient to another. So I'm looking forward to having a different insight in looking at how resuscitations and the anatomy of resuscitations would look like from a neuroscientist's perspective. That's fantastic. And so what we'll do, we'll get right into it. And LA is going to paint us a picture of, and just, just for the audience to understand, LA works at the Stanford Department of Emergency Medicine. This is a significant, well-regarded hospital, obviously, that deals with 
a lot of extreme trauma, and they do it on a daily basis. And this is something he has both expertise and craft in. And so I say that so that you know that when he speaks, he's speaking a vast amount of experience and knowledge. It's also a very lived experience, which is to say that there are normal people doing this. And so sometimes it really helps to hear from the people that are doing this work what it's, what it's like in the moments that are happening. And so with that, L.A., if you could start us off by sort of helping the audience understand the context of what's happening in one of these traumatic experiences. Got it. So I'm going to paint a picture of a hypothetical case, which is really an amalgamation of cases that's happened recently. I actually just had a series of resuscitations just a couple of days ago. So some of this that I'll infuse will be fresh in my mind as well. So this is a trauma alert. And trauma alert is when we get alerted ahead of time about how long the the pre-hospital team will be bringing a patient. They're bringing in a 37-year-old male patient who's presenting in code three, so bells and sirens. And and briefly, the story is that this is a restrained driver of a motor vehicle collision at highway speeds, driving the opposite direction. The other car had three passengers. All of the passengers are dead on scene. And so we hear this, and and really the, the ring down just tells us the vital signs of the patients, how far along they are, and if there's any critical injuries that they are anticipating, they let us know that. That's pretty much it. So uh, it's not uncommon sometimes that we call other specialists other than the trauma team, and then they ask like, well, is their bones broken? Uh, Do we need this? Do we need that? And really my answer is, we will see. Okay. So just to say that back to the audience, you're in the hospital, maybe you're drinking coffee or you're between patients, and all of a sudden you get an alert. You have an incoming patient from a car accident. You've got to stop what you're doing, and you have a period of time to prepare yourself before they arrive. And so you're marshalling whatever resources to understand what's going on. So that's the first moment that your team detects that there is a problem coming in, but you don't know yet what that problem is. Is that accurate? Yeah, so it's actually um, more complicated than that, Preston. It's more of each of us are taking care of our patients as well. So we may not actually be sitting down drinking coffee. I would be seeing another patient. My residents will also be doing other tasks. The nurses are also taking care of other patients that uh, that we're seeing in the emergency department. And really all we get is either a text message uh, or an overhead page that in five minutes, we're going to get a trauma. The only time that I will actually find out what the ring down is, if I'm right next to the base station. So oftentimes I actually don't know even what's coming. It's they're just going to let us know like, hey, five minutes, there's a trauma. Uh, Ellie, thank you so much for clarifying that. And this is actually a really good moment to turn to Zab. So Zab, here's a situation. LA is immersed already in a series of critical tasks with other patients. An alarm of some sort goes off to say, in a few moments, you're going to need to pivot to something else where you're going to have a very small amount of time, someone who's actually dying. They're in the process of dying. You've got a small amount of time for you and your team to get them stabilized and back to life. So from a neuroscience point of view, what's going on? with with LA and his team? Well, there's so much going on in this particular context, right? Because there's sort of cognitive load at the level of the individual. There's individuated stress responses, right? So some, and that that has to do sometimes with just inner individual differences that are sort of innate to that process. But then there are also, you know, skills and learning and expertise, right, that come into play that that can either yeah, minimize that or maximize that depending on the trajectory. And I know that LA is also at a training hospital. So that 
that comes into play um, as far as the experience, the level of the experience. Uh, but then there are all the interactions between the team, right? So, so it also requires everything from effective communication, receiving the signals, if those are you know perceptual, like your text message or auditory, right? If there's a bing you know, or a ping or something uh, that we hear to this idea of how you sort of pull yourself away from the tasks at hand and decide, right, the, your strategy about prioritization of what you're trying to get accomplished, right? So you yourself as an individual, along with your team, have to use the sort of evidence that you have on hand to strategically decide how to prioritize your efforts and deploy an action plan. And your action plan might be quite different from, from the person next to you. So this is as complex an environment, I think, as, as we could imagine, right? This is a really difficult thing to simulate in the lab, <laughs> not only because the stakes are so radically different, right? But even just the requests of how people are sorting through the information is at a level where you might not be able to sort of ethically push your volunteer participants in a lab study to that degree. So there are some limitations of what we know from the neuroscience side. Thank you so much. LA, do you want to add to that? Yeah, um, I think Zab has uh, set the stage that uh, the emergency department and the, the resuscitation that we do really falls into the VUCA environment. So it's volatile, uncertain, lots of complexity, and there's a lot of ambiguity, ambiguity of what's coming ahead and ambiguity of whether or not our interventions will be effective at all. Okay, so to say this back for everybody, just and I'm going to try to do this from time to time, you've got a complex environment of the problem set, but you've also got a complex human ecosystem, right? So you're in a network tactical swarm environment where you've got a lot of people that are going to come together with a lot of mixed experiences, expertise, and everything else that have to come together to execute in a task. There's going to be various levels of cognitive load because you're going to have experts and novices along that continuum. And you're going to also have people that deal with stress in different ways. So you're going to have people with greater and lower stress. They're all coming together. And so just to get a really fine point on this, Zab, I'm going to come back to you for a second here. So in this moment where you are, no kidding, you're working on your patient, your nurse, your, your LA, and that moment where you detect what we would call a threat detection, in this case, it's not a threat to you, but it certainly falls in the category of threat detection where, okay, there's a thing where I have to change whatever I'm doing now because something's incoming that I got to, I have to now do something about. What are the kinds of things that are going on for people traditionally when it comes to around issues of threat detection or detection? Right. So why don't I start with just a sort of operational definition of, of detection so that we can sort of all come at it from a common language. In my field, I'm a visual neuroscientist. So I think about detection in the terms of like sort of perceptual detection, right? And that's, that's our ability to perceive that something has occurred. And so in this space, neuroscientists and psychologists and other experts in performance and information theory, they talk about absolute thresholds as being sort of the minimum amount of a stimulus or the kinds of information, the minimum amount of information that's necessary for it to be detectable from background. So in my line of work as a visual neuroscientist, this might be like as, you know, as boring as the number of photons of light that are captured by the cells in the eye's retina, right? That lead to be able to perceive that there's light there. An example from medicine that is more, you know, that is sort of more concrete and 
more interesting for lay people as well as doctors, right, is this idea of like being able to detect a tumor from an x-ray, right? So there's a noisy background there and there needs to be some minimum amount of information in order for someone to say, aha, that looks suspicious and we need further tests, right? So these are things that sort of lead to this idea of just noticeable differences, right? So that's detection in a nutshell. LA put into a really interesting context, this idea of ambiguity. So ambiguity is key to this idea, right? So not only is our, our environments noisy, but so is the activity in our heads. So our neurons add noise to the system. And although we like to think that we you know, have a one-to-one -one representation of our perceptions of the world, it is almost always ambiguous to some level or another, right? And there are some contexts that are, you know, much more complicated and ambiguous than others, but our brains are working really hard to sort of sort out the information, the relevant content information from that noisy background, whether that's internal to ourselves or from the external environment. And so ambiguity ends up being this very, very important thing in this idea of how we accumulate evidence to make a decision or an action. And this is hardwired in us and it's a, it's a really interesting process and how that gets more complicated by our you know, skills and expertise and even our teamwork becomes, uh, I think, one of the most interesting and relevant areas that we're exploring. It's exciting. LA. Yeah. And, and I think to add to, to that, Zab, is the prior experiences of each of those individuals. So if they've had a bad case recently, if they resonated with a case, I painted a picture of a 37-year-old patient. So a lot of the team members will kind of be closer to that age, or they can relate to it. And also the complexity of some other social events there. So if the patient is intoxicated and now have just been the cause of death for three other people, how does that influence the way that they would interact in managing this patient? And there's also the, the power dynamics in that team, right? So essentially, I'm trying to create a, a team that we, we may not have seen each other before this event. All of us now, there's probably about 12 of us, or there's the team captain, there's the ED attending, which is me, there's a trauma attending, there's a trauma senior, there's a proceduralist, so an, an emergency medicine resident or a trauma resident, there's somebody who's doing the ultrasound, there's the nurses, so you have two nurses, there's the, the um, IV nurse, the respiratory therapist, the techs, uh, in case you will need like blood products or chest compressions, and also there's somebody who's documenting all of this. So again, we may not have been in the same room for all of those teams. And yet now we have to quickly introduce ourselves, recognize each other, recognize the role, and then kind of fall into that while managing all those ambiguities that you just mentioned, Zab. And I think that's a great pivot, LA, to, to recognize. Before I do, just to clarify the audience, just to bring this to something you might recognize, we uh, probably many of us have been standing around a radio when suddenly everybody turns and stares at the radio because something was said or not said on a working radio that triggered something in your brain to say, that's not right. 
you might have been in a room somewhere where all of a sudden you feel like you smell smoke and you suddenly start looking around. It happens very, very fast and often unconsciously, this idea of detection. And the difference is trained professionals will be able to leverage that detection and untrained folks will often go right into an acute stress response, fight, flight, freeze. They won't know what to do with it. They will just be filled with anxiety. And it's one of the difference between trained and untrained folks. And that's worth noticing if you're if you're listening here. But before we move to, to recognition, is there anything you want to add to that or, or contradict Zabarelli? Well, I'll add something to it, which is, you know, is this idea that we first sort of have to differentiate these perceptual properties and, you know, what's available to us, right? But as LA said, that then moves quickly to this idea of how it compares to our, you know, memories, our current internal states, how we've had outcomes before, how to compare it to previous experiences, um, and even to expectations in the future, right, around how we relate to one another in, on a team and, and assign, as he said, right, these ideas of hierarchy within the structure. All of that stuff is, is at an intricate, you know, interplay in this context, and we're doing it really fast. So while the sort of detection side of things can be really, really rapid, it is this other stuff that actually starts the accumulation process and slows that down in some contexts, right? And so we talk about when that isn't slowed down, that's the space where there are lots of biases. And I use the word biases not to mean something negative, although I think in most of our language, we have now come to, to describe biases, but as things that are sort of give us a prior set of of expectations and knowledge based on experience, right? And sometimes that can be really helpful, right? To have those skills because it can offset some of those other things that can be more detrimental, like your own stress response or your own need to make, to accumulate more evidence in order to be more accurate at something. But it can also be detrimental in, in ways where you rely sort of on your standard operating procedures and your habits instead of actually being more open to the idea that there may be other I'm glad we took a few minutes to talk about that because I think it's really important as we transition now to LA to, to add comments and then move to the, the recognition piece that I'm glad we took a moment to sort of talk about the background music that's happening in this social ecosystem. It's not just a bunch of experts that come together. There's all these other things that are happening sort of subcortically or however you want to say that unconsciously. They're happening in the background that we're not always aware of, but that absolutely influence the work we're doing. And so with that, I'm going to turn to L.A. who can add color to what's been said, but also to move us to this place where now the patient has rolled into the emergency department, right? We, we know that a threat has been detected, but now we have to actually say, no kidding, what's the actual problem? What, is, what, is, what do we need to fix? What's actually wrong with them? How do we recognize that? So L.A. to you. So thank you. So, uh, so, so far, we've set the stage of, of we're expecting a critical care patients, and at the same time, we're managing our own emotions, we're managing the environment, and we're managing the team that we're going to be working with. I think to add complexity to that expertise that, that you mentioned, Preston, is that each of us will have different activation states as we try to detect these uh, the life and limb injuries, and yet, at the same time, the complexity of a training program. And so... It's actually designed so that we will work with the non-experts in order to help them become experts eventually. And so there has to be this level of forgiveness as they kind of fumble a little bit in front of us. And yet, again, 
our main focus is to make sure that we detect those life and limb injuries. And so any fumble from them could mean significant injuries further for, for the patient. So then there's that extra added, the, the word is vicarious trauma or, or even like moral injury. Do we let the intern do X, Y, Z when it's delaying care for the patient? And when do we then take over so that we continue to move on with our, with our goal of resuscitation and overcome that process of learning versus actually taking care of the patient? So LA... We're we're now in this situation where you've got the the and that that's all sort of extraordinary what we've been talking about so far because it really is important as we're talking about a learning diagnostic to understand the complexities of how those residents grow and how they learn and what the the cost benefit analysis moment to moment is for processing all of that. So now we're in that in that place. You've got a patient that's been rolled in front of you. You've got the team around the patient. How do you go about tactically sort of recognizing what those things are? Or is it really about what you just said, that each person has a role for a different, say, part of the body that they're sort of focusing in on? Ah, Yeah. So because I think in the emergency department or in resuscitations, a lot of this, there's it's a chaotic environment. We have created or we practice a set of order. So the we start with the ABC. So the, the primary survey, just evaluating the airway, the breathing, the circulation. And so the, the, the resident goes through that and kind of calls out if there's any abnormalities to then we as a team would then um, address. And so it's important for us to follow that. Often what I see though, especially for the most junior resident that, that calls out all those abnormalities is that they they freeze in, in your words, or they see a lot of bloods on the lower, on the limb, and they focus on that. And then they miss like, hey, airway, we're still like in the airway. And so reminding that, uh, re- so the, the senior resident, the team captain, or the, the attending will remind the, the junior, hey, I need you to focus on the airway. And the delivery of that uh, input has to be crafted so that you don't further freeze the junior resident, because they're already in the in a very activated state. Yeah. What I think is super, what I want to draw attention to you, besides this idea of vulnerability and humility and, and calmness, is also the importance of naming things, right? Saying things out loud. And oftentimes with elite teams, what we see, whether it be fire or special operations, is they're so confident in what they do, they forget to say things out loud so those that are learning can follow along. And those that are learning, being asked to say things out loud, even though it's going to expose their knowledge gaps, it's going to expose their weaknesses, which which adds another layer of complexity emotionally. And so now, yeah, and LA, add to that, please. Yeah, and and also, so I've worked in in non-training environments as well, and believe it or not, this happens the same exact way. It doesn't take away the humanity for when you see those like mangled legs and you focus on that. And then you're like, oh, I need to focus on airway. And usually that's why there's a system that's designed so that the, the whoever is documenting will say, yeah, but can you go back to the airway? Can you go back to the breathing? Because again, we fall into those automatic responses like the gore, we focus on all the where the bleeding is, when in fact, we may be missing all the other critical things uh, that we need to recognize. Yeah, we see this. For example, there's a number, a lot of research actually with firefighters who are parents of small children who respond to fires with small children. A lot of what will happen is their training will go out the window because they will, they'll activate 
And so what's interesting, and this is where I'm going to turn to, to Zab, just to remind everybody, we're talking about folks who are trained versus untrained. But And so training people are able to pause and recognize before they react with a caveat. If you don't have training or if you're seeing something that impacts you emotionally, it will often override your ability to recognize and trigger an acute stress reaction. You will go then back to your, your sort of your fight, flight, freeze, and you'll need a team to get you back, just as you were saying, to recognize. And this is a very normal human thing that, as they say in sailing, everyone has a certain combination of wind and, and waves where they'll get seasick. So it, no matter where you are in your career, there's a certain combination that might get to you. And so with that, Zab, if you could talk to us a little bit about, so there we are, we've detected a threat. And now we have to not, you know, instinctually, we want to move to action. We want to react. We want to start doing something. But we've got to pause to find out, hey, what are we going to prioritize? What do we need to recognize so that what we do apply is most effective? Right. So there are a couple of things here that I also want to clarify. One is that it isn't always threat detection, right, especially with highly trained teams. Right. So a lot of times there is a conditioned response, which is that you become so used to something, even though it's, you know, a novice or a new person, you know, witnessing a scene would be traumatized and, you know, might have these, you know, a completely different kind of stress response and have that sort of threat detection aspect come into play. People with experience, right, uh, come in and, and that can be flattened and dampened, right, in ways that that high functioning teams are aware, right, this is a, this is sort of an ongoing thing of how do, how do you rejigger training, right? So that people don't lean just on their priors, right? Their priors and their and their own internal experiences uh, and learning and expertise and, and look at things with, you know, fresh eyes or from another set of perspectives, for example. So that's really, really important uh, in this particular context in particular, right? Any high-performing team isn't necessarily going to be operating at the same level as, as the novice would be. So I, I definitely wanted to, to raise that issue. But I think that moves us, if we think about the assessment phase of it, right, it, it, it now brings in this idea of the sort of rich array of choices and behaviors outcomes, right, that, that then need to be made and, and how that can best be organized by a complex group. So that moves us to, to this idea of from detection and discrimination Discrimination, you know, is the ability to take the information in a complex context and and begin to sort it right amongst really confusable types. So this this allows us to sort of categorize, pull things apart. As LA said, right, this can differentiate the beginner from the expert. Right, this idea of of how people are taking that the kind of information that they can see and perceive start to pull those things apart into a more complex task, and that is part of the, the decision arc within the team as well as within the individual too. Nice. And so here we are, we've detected the threat. We know that there's somebody coming in. We've, they've come into the emergency department. We've begun the process of going through some, some checklists in order to kind of keep us on a train tracks to help us overcome some of these reactions that we might, these visceral reactions that we might have so that we have kind of a train tracks that we're going down. We can use that in order to recognize what the problems are. And once we start identifying and calling them out, there's a moment where, okay, now we have to actually apply the craft of medicine. We have to start reacting. This is where our fingers and our wrists and our elbows and our hips and our knees start to need to move in the right direction so that we 
we open, we close, we patch, we mend, right? And we have to do this in a group environment. So there's a little bit of a dance that's going on here. There needs to be a little bit of synchronicity, but there also needs to be an, a, a certain amount of smoothness because what we know is that people who are amped up have greater sort of muscle movement. You'll see sort of erratic limb movement. And so, and in a group environment, that can be a little bit of a challenge. And so LA, when you're in this situation and, you're, and you've got a team and they are now doing the business, they're doing the work of medicine. They're actually applying the tools and techniques to the person against the things you've recognized. What are the sort of things that you think about or what are you seeing during that period? As I'm also looking at the patients and looking for that life and limb threats, I also look at the, again, I'm able to do this because I'm, I'm one of the most senior people in the room. And so I can actually step back. I can look at the, the way the team dynamics are working. Is somebody so amped up that I need to calm them down? And, and I think that's actually not as easy to do. I've had to learn this over the years because telling them to stop shaking actually causes more shaking. And so what I've had to learn is to slow down the cadence of my speech, calling them by their name, uh, the idea of closed loop communication. So talking to the nurse and saying, Sarah, can you please do this versus I need bicarb now or I need XYZ now, I think is very, very helpful. And also to, to, to work with the way that we communicate. So a nurse might be saying something, a resident is saying another thing, and then there's no, there, all the, the orders are just like crossing each other and nothing is getting done. I have to also pause and say, I heard that we're going to do this. What happened to this? Sarah, can you please follow up on this? So again, just making sure that that connects. But, but oftentimes when I'm watching this, it's really fascinating to see whether or not. So I work, I'm a nocturnist. So I, I see my team, like I'm more used to my team versus when I work during the day shift, when I'm teaching and I'm in, in a resuscitation and I don't know everybody. And then I have to take on this role as like now the, the, the attending to kind of connect people. I think that takes another level of skill. And for me, what uh, what is also important is the, the idea of pre-briefing. So before we even get to what we're going to do, assigning roles earlier on and saying, my voice is going to be the only voice that you're going to hear unless they're setting those expectations ahead of time, which we didn't really go to earlier. Uh, it's very important because if you miss that, catching up during the heat of the moment is so much harder to do. Yeah, there's a bunch of points that you just made, which I want to draw everybody's attention to. As we see the emergence and the growth of these tactical swarms, exactly that you're talking about, where people who don't know each other are coming together for the first time, what you don't have that intact teams have is cohesion and trust, which we know is, is an, an improvement for optimal performance. It's an asset. So in the absence of that, where possible, to LA's point of view, this pre-briefing where you can do very simple things, including knowing each other's names, you know, just saying something kind, Things that will actually leverage your abilities to do your jobs really matter. And I and I want, before I turn over to LA, I want to point out that the reaction that LA is thinking about is not just the person whose hands are on the patient, but it's also about how those hands are coordinating with the other hands. And one of the things that LA pointed out to, and this is probably where I'll pivot to Zab, is this notion that we've seen on a lot of the teams in special operations, especially of under and over arousal. And this idea that some people get conditioned to these events 
and sometimes under aroused. They just they don't rise to the occasion and people don't see it's a serious because they're so calm because they're a little bit immune to it. So being able to calibrate your voice to know when to let people know, hey, we're going to escalate a little bit. This is getting serious, but also when to calm down because I'll self-indict. I am I am guilty in my career of telling someone to calm down and realizing that was zero helpful, right? Like they would have already thought of that solution. And so you're absolutely right, like how to help people with that. And so I will now turn to Zab to sort of talk about this reaction phase and, and also just to leverage any of the things that Ellie and I were talking about. Yeah, so arousal levels and those individual differences are exactly at the crux of what I said before, right? Which is is how we, you know, how we respond in these complex environments and how that shifts and changes dynamically over time. And different people respond in different ways. And you know, there's a reason, there's actually a biological reason, you know, why sometimes high arousal states are really, really useful. And we know those innately, right? We know that in contexts where we're at risk and peril, right? It's really important for us to be able to to react much more quickly and to process information more quickly, right? In order to devise an action plan that will hopefully save ourselves, right? And perhaps others. But I think in this particular context, there are these other sort of more negative long-term effects, right? Which is that high functioning teams that are at a high level of arousal for a long time uh, has deep consequences for both outcomes and individual and team health. So there are deep consequences for long-term stress activations. And, you know, stress can, we could spend an entire podcast, you know, just talking about stress. I am not a stress neuroscientist, so that is not necessarily my expertise. But I do know, right, that those consequences for long-term stress and high arousal states for any, you know, anybody working in that context has incredibly bad effects over, over time. So we need to sort of be careful about navigating that relationship between the helpful aspects where it can facilitate being able to do one's job um, and be able to respond quickly. But also, you know, not to the level where, as LA said, right, the even the junior, but also the senior people where over time, right, their lives get compromised from the sort of consequences of that. My other point, I think that's really important here is the idea that he brought in about this, like, what, what's involved with the sort of social side of the teamwork. So that aspect of, of being an inclusive team, even in a team that doesn't know each other well, that is activating, you know, your social brain network. That is an incredibly important area of the brain that dovetails with your decision-making processes in really, really important ways. And one thing that is important here is that uh, we know that your perception of where you are on the social hierarchy can dampen your activity in your social brain network. So, you know, people who are CEOs or people who are the lead doctors or the chief residents have to actually employ other kinds of strategies in order to compensate for some of that dampening, right? And those are exactly the the examples that LA said, is sort of pausing, right? Becoming more reflective, thinking about that other person, mentalizing the state of a junior person or someone else on your team or a nurse that may, you know, where there are implicit biases around the hierarchy. And that all of those kinds of ways of strengthening our own ability to do perspective taking and mentalizing the other uh, and factoring that in will just 
increase the facility and outcomes for those teams. That's awesome. Ellie, yeah. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Zab. I think that actually sets us up with another area here that's uh, very important, which is the pandemic. Preston kind of alluded to this high quality connections and, and saying something nice to kind of de-escalate the tension in the room. Well, nowadays, when you walk in, or even before you walk in, we're wearing masks, we're raising face masks, we're gowned up. And so we really do not see each other other than our eyes. And so it's harder to communicate those facial expressions that we use to rely a lot in creating this sense of psychological safety. And so one thing that's important really that we rely on is our voice now. And yet now our voice is muffled because of the N95 mask. And so it's very important to even from the beginning to set that stage and, and, and say something as you're assigning, as you're uh, pre-briefing so that people will kind of recognize that voice and then remember that during those higher stakes uh, decision-making as the course of the resuscitation happens. So when we're still calmer at the, at the very beginning and bringing us back to the beginning, that initial voice and kind of calling each other, making jokes maybe, or, or saying something that kind of connects people quickly, or humor for me uh, helps a lot, like quickly dissipates a lot of these tension. And then for me personally, I do a lot of quick breathing exercise. Well, it's actually slowing down my breathing at the very beginning and during the events to slow down that mental process as well so that I'm able to pause and recognize like my own activation state. Because even though I don't want that to, to get conveyed or, or displayed to my team, uh, people will perceive that with the way that I'm, I'm saying something, with the way that I'm noticing things and, and um, focusing on them. So a couple of points just to, to bridge this into our next section. One to, to Zab's point, one of the myths that, that a lot of high-performing teams have is they believe high-performance teams should stay in high-performance. It's actually not possible and actually really, really bad for you. High-performance teams are meant to be in a sine wave. You come up into the activation, but then you go down into a rest period. Without that rest period, there's long-term negative consequences to you personally and to the team. The second thing, going back to what LA was saying, is there is just starting to be some research that, that is super interesting about the mythological impacts of masks. So if you think about just how humans think about masks, right, it's usually not positive. Um, like if you think about all the stories or comic books or movies, somebody wearing a mask is usually not the hero or the heroine. It's usually a bad day. And so I think what's happening is people are not realizing that if you don't take care to do the kinds of things LA is talking about, to humanize yourself prior to, and you're just a mask, then a lot of things can get interpreted or overlaid on top of you without your knowledge or consent. And, and simply because masks have such significance in, in our social fabric and the way that we're raised. And so these things seem like a little bit out there, but, but there is significance to this if you take a, a minute to think about it. So what I want to bridge us to now to connect some of these things is that, and, and this was referenced early on by, by LA, but one of the things we talk about this, this transition from reaction to response, and there's different authors that have talked about getting up on the balcony or being able to take the elevator to the attic and then down to the basement. This idea of being able to transition from the thing that you're right in front of you, what your fingers are working on, right, to react to what's happening in front of you, but to respond to the larger problem set. We've certainly heard of cases where a patient will come in with a perfectly splinted leg, but no head, right? Where Because the person reacted to the problem in front of them without 
opening their aperture to see the larger problem goes back to LA's notion like we got to we got to stay with the airway before we can do anything else. And so LA, I'll start with you, but this idea that there'll be a phase where once you start to stabilize the immediate threats to the patient, we also now have to think about the longer term care. What are the things we need to put in place for the longer sort of stay this person's going to happen or the consequences of this event? And so how do you and how does your team start that transition or what does it look like when people start transitioning out of the immediate like hands-on patient to the larger long-term response to that patient? So once we've addressed the critical injuries of the patient, or once we actually diagnose that there's a critical injury that we need to intervene either in the operating room or somewhere else, we need to do advanced imaging. What's really important for us is to, again, closing that loop. And so summarizing. So whenever it's it's becoming chaotic in a resuscitation, what's always important is to, okay, let's just pause. Where are we? What have we done so far? What are the injuries? Let's summarize all the injuries so that we're all on the same page that like, XYZ needs to happen next. Because again, I think from a from a junior perspective or from whoever is calling out the, the surveys of, of injuries, they may have a different priority versus from the, the team leader who's then having uh, who will then have to make the decision of let's go to the operating room or actually we need we, we have some time, I need more information, let's go to the CT scanner. The complexity there is that if you make the mistake of going to the CT scanner and the patient is actually unstable, then you would have to bring now your entire team and call them again in the CT scanner and resuscitate there. And that has happened. And so I think having this moment of just take a deep breath, let's catch up and let's see what's happening and let's reprioritize what we need to happen next. I think it's important. Yeah, I want to draw your attention, draw everybody's attention to what LA just said. Take a deep breath, right? Because it is physiologically, when we move, when we own the clock, so to speak, once again, well, we're no longer reacting to the threat, but we are now sort of have stabilization of the patient where we now own the clock again. And it's a moment for us to catch our breath, think about the bigger picture, and then transition. But we have to have the wherewithal to do that intentionally. And one of the ways that we cue that with everybody else is exactly what we're saying is you're saying is saying some things out loud. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's where I think we're at. Does everybody agree? And if you don't, there's an opportunity for the social network to say, you know, Pastanella, you've missed this. We got to make sure this is covered. And you do that a few times until you get to a place. Okay, we really have stabilized. We own the clock again. So I will now turn to Zab and we think about that movement from that reaction to that, that transition, that physiological transition as we start to move out of the immersion event, we start to own the clock again. There are there are chemical things happening, there are neurological things happening. What's what's going on in the brain there? So I mean, another aspect that I wanted to point out is that we often talk about the decision-making process as if it's this very short-term thing, right? But actually our decisions accumulate as well. So what LA also described, right, was this moment where people have been doing, you know, have been deciding, have been, you know, detecting and discriminating and making action plans all along that route. But then there may be a moment where everybody has to step back and accumulate all that other evidence, right, to make yet another more comprehensive kind of decision. And what I wanted to stress, right, is that that in itself is how the brain constructs its decision-making process, right? So in high-performance theory, right, we know that there's a speed-accuracy trade-off. 
So the faster we make an action plan, the more likely we are to be wrong. But if we take too long, right, to, to accumulate as much evidence as we can, we may lose the window of opportunity, right? It, it, we're either indecisive or we might lose a patient in this particular context, right? And so those are our counterbalances that we're doing all the time, both as individuals and, and in intact teams, right? This idea of how you weigh the cost-benefit analysis of accumulating as much evidence as you can in order to make the right action, you know, that's weighted by our, our experiences and our prior knowledge. How many times has this happened before? All of the information and the flow of information that's coming to us from all of these different aspects, what we see, what we hear, how we communicate with one another, but it are impacting that that outset of our action plans, right? And so what we really want is to optimize that, right? And to do that as well as we can with our team so that, that there is that moment, right, where, and that's the, the key to the communication piece, right? There's that moment where, where that has to come from some direction, right? When we decide, how we decide, how we're incorporating the evidence that's coming to us from our teams, and, you know, not only is this the way that decision-making operates, you know, at the behavioral level of our outputs, but it also happens at the neural level. Our deciders that are happening in our brains are actually accumulating evidence in exactly this kind of way. So it's, it's not just a metaphor. It is, in fact, how, how it's happening. So that's a really, really important aspect is that sort of speed accuracy trade-off in this idea where we have very finite amounts of time. What we hope, right, is that those prior expectations and our sort of own comprehension of how to take in the information, it should at least be as well honed as it could possibly be. What I think is super interesting as I turn back over to LA is, you know, in a bunch of teams, we talk about a concept such as a shared situational awareness or collective intelligence. There's a number of different terms for this, but it's the shared understanding amongst the team about what we're looking at, what's what's happening in real time collectively. And what's interesting about this surfacing of decisions and data collectively is that it's highly dependent on everyone's voice being heard. So if there's an environment where we don't allow certain people to talk, that means you're actually not getting certain data. And is that that can be due to cultural, historical reasons. It can be due to social reasons. It can be due to leadership and personality reasons. But it's really up to the leaders in those environments to make sure that everyone is empowered to say their piece of the puzzle, right? Their part of the story. Because if you don't, if the leader doesn't have the entire narrative of all that data that Zab was talking about, all those decisions, all those consequences, then they're they're making their decisions and plans based on imperfect sort of a view of the world, so to speak. And so LA, just anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I love how we're all thinking here. I was actually going to say something about how level setting is also very important as we play nice in the uh, in the playground. Because from a purposes of team dynamics, somebody or a couple of people may have a, a differing opinion and they've been holding on to that, which actually from a decision-making perspective, they're stuck on that because they've been waiting to say something. And so they are not able to focus on their task because they wanted to interrupt you as well. And yet there, there's a respect for the hierarchy. And so this is a time to really, when you're summarizing, to hear everybody else's perspective and create that, again, psychological safety. Because I know that 
I will have to work with them again on the next resuscitation or the next day. And how I handle this team dynamics is also very important, not just to to complete the workup of this patient, but also to preserve the longer term relationship that I will have with these X teams that I'm working at this very moment. It's it's super interesting because one of the problems that, that we're seeing right now worldwide is a lot of the in people that are used to being on intact teams that have that just cohesion don't have the skill set you just described. They don't actually understand that that person that just came into their life will come back. Yeah, They think, oh, this is a one-off event. I will just use them as I need them and then dismiss them. But then tomorrow they show back up quite angry and we got to do another thing. And they're and it's right now in real time, teams around the world are making the transition for many of them from intact teams to tactical swarms. And this challenge is real. Yeah. Zab, does anyone want to add to that? No, I mean, I think that that's the, that's what you just hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I think that that's really important. And again, that sort of stresses this idea of the other dimension, right? The social dynamics that are at play in decision-making, right? We, we think of ourselves, we like to think of ourselves as rational agents. We, of course, we aren't rational. We know that we don't necessarily, we're not optimized to make perfect decisions and perfect consequences, right? But I think that there, there's that whole level of even more potential chaos when we start to have to think about the team, about the social aspects of and how those are impacting both our own decisions, but also the decisions of the team. So what I'm going to do right now quickly is just to summarize where we're at. So when we talk about an immersion event, we talk about the fact that LA is is at work doing his job. He gets a call, right, detecting that there is a 37-year-old male coming into the emergency department that's in bad shape. And so at that moment, he's going to cross what we call the event horizon into an immersion event. That person's going to arrive. He's going to him and his team are going to swarm to the patient. They're going to first recognize what the threats are. Then they're going to react to fix those threats. And then they're going to respond to sort of deal with the larger sort of issues along with that. Not only the patient, but where the patient will be going and the context of the team and how to make sure that the team can produce again next time. At that point, they'll own the clock. So they've stabilized in an optimal situation. They've stabilized the environment. They own the clock. And now, most likely, they're going to transition that patient to another team. And what often teams fail to do, and this is a thing that I'm still trying to figure out, is that there are some teams that that's a shock every time. Wait, we have to trans. Yes, you always will have to transition. This should not be a shock. It happens every time. And so you need to actually spend a little bit of time preparing yourself to transition in two ways. One, transition to to all the information and what's happened to the new team, but also transition yourself to what we call the reset, preparing yourself for the next immersion event, whatever's coming next, whether it be a patient or whatever else. So any errors that were made, any arguments that were had, any bad feelings, any uncertainty, any sadness, all of that will need to get processed so that you can clear your mind to be fully present for the next thing. And so when we talk about reset, we're really talking about both the transition from what your problem set to another team, and we're talking about transitioning yourself to the next event in a fully present way. And so I I will turn over to LA to sort of talk about what that looks like for the people on the team as they're getting ready to transition the patient to somebody, to another team, and they themselves transitioning to the next immersion event, whatever it might be. Yeah, Preston, I think this is where we actually do not do well as well. 
So specifically in this resuscitation, we would sign out, uh, we'll transfer the care to the trauma team, they will take over, and then they arrive in the operating room, for instance, and then they would have to transfer the information again for a new team, their anesthesiologist, the OR techs, all of that. We are not going to be part of that now. And so for me, I would have to quickly reset in order to then go back and see that other patient that I was interrupted with that interaction. How I manage that is very important because I cannot take take with me the all the baggage and all the emotions and how revved up I am into that room. This is easier said than done because if it was a bad outcome, if it was like a very chaotic environment that actually led to either a death or, or a lot more uh, emotionally taxing situation. Maybe there's like a disagreement with the management or however it is. How I go into that room uh, for my next patient is also very important because they don't need to see me like that. For me, again, I go back to the breathing process. I slow down my breathing. I go for a walk. And I did not uh, learn this until years after training that I have the ability to get that one or two minutes to just go for a walk. So for me, for instance, I'll grab a sandwich and give that to another patient because that act of, uh, in my mind, like act of kindness will elicit some gratitude from the other person. And also for me to kind of just see something positive before I go back into that next patient who I know is now very angry. They've been waiting so long. Why did I, why did you make me uh, wait here for so long? And, and I can't believe you made me wait. This is Stanford or whatever else explanation that they would tell me. And unless I'm able to quickly reset myself, I am going to be way up here. And they're also going to be way high as well in their emotions. And we both need to kind of lower ourselves. And so by, by me kind of deactivating myself, I'm able to then call out, hey, I'm so sorry you've been waiting for so long. I can only imagine. So a lot of these empathy can quickly be replenished by just quick, like one or two minutes that I just uh, needed for myself to also reset. How my resume team is doing that is also very different. And so again, like this is where burnout comes in because you are essentially, so, so what we're expected to do is compartmentalize our emotions and then go from one room to another. Unfortunately, if we don't step back later on, either in that moment or later on, to then deal with all of those emotions, this residue that we were discussing before kind of just keeps on building up and building up. And then somewhere down the line, this is how you see somebody just like burst into like a, a, a tirade of, of unprofessionalism or they quit or they just like they, they just lose it and then just leave. I think it's super fascinating, right? Because I'm 53 years old and it's taken me 53 years to figuring out the following truth. When something is funny, I should laugh. And something when is something is super sad, I should cry. People are like, what? Yeah, it took me 53 years to figure this out. And, and what it is, to LA's point, is just because I've been trained and have experience and done this for a long years, I don't get a pass from being human. I still am a human being and all the things that come with being human, frustration, sad, joy, all that, I don't get a pass. It still comes to me. So my choice is either to be intentional about managing it and dealing with it and acknowledging it and processing it, or I can let it destroy me. That Those are my choices. So to LA's point, this idea of taking responsibility for our own welfare, right? Oh, too often we think, I'll just, I'm in service to the world. Someone will eventually rescue me. No one's coming to rescue you. You need to rescue yourself. And the way you're going to do that is in little pieces like LA is saying. But I think what's interesting is that People are often saying, oh, Preston, that sounds nice, but you know, to have this luxury to kind of look after ourselves, 
doesn't really address the what's scientifically happening to your brain and your body when you've gone through an immersion event you've now seen some things that are that are pretty shocking to you that have elicited certain chemistry within your body that is now burning through your body right and you've got to actually deplete that so that you can re-engage at the appropriate arousal level for your next patient or your next mission right and how to do that it can be done but it must be done intentionally and so this is where I'll turn to Zab to talk about what are the like no kidding just facts about what it is to be human in these environments. Yeah, and I think you you also pointed out a really important thing, which is that there are a lot of differences between people, right? So how how their strategies are deployed, right, uh, in order to do that, and I think we could do a better job both within the context of like our medical training environment our, you know, work culture to maximize that, right? To give people outlets and skills and knowledge about how to self-direct some of that better. I think that would be, that would be really great. As you pointed out before, that uh, this idea of breathing skills, which LA keeps saying are so valuable to, to his own ability to, to reset are things that, you know, right now, people largely have to teach themselves, come to the awareness of themselves. So I think we can do better as sort of teaching and learning institutions, you know, and how we ready teams and immersive, you know, immersive teams to do this and individuals too, right? I mean, you know, I instruct at an Ivy League institution um, and our students aren't learning uh, that these are really core aspects of, of resilience and being able to address things at a normative level for themselves. So one thing that, but that's my anecdote. But LA also pointed out this idea that taking a walk is sometimes his optimal. So breathing strategies and taking a walk, those dovetail into something where the brain actually, the brain's response is now leaning on the default mode network, which is a terrible name, <laughs> but it came out of this idea from brain scanning experiments at the University of, uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. So usually, you know, in experiments, people are given a task to do. In this particular case, when brain scanning was relatively new in the 1980s and 1990s, this particular team measured brain activity when they were not asking anybody to do anything. The default condition, which turns out your brain is always active. It's always doing something. It's never doing nothing. And so this is actually the, the sort of brain areas that are engaged when you do things like become contemplative or uh, when you think about, you do sort of mental time travel, uh, you think about the what happened in the past or what might be coming in the future, but it is not a task-oriented circuit. So these, these are actually different from one another and one can't be active at the same time as the other. So LA pointed out this very, very important thing, which is that sometimes allowing yourself to do that mind-wandering you know, that sort of engaging the default mode network can only come into play when you're not doing an active task. And we are giving ourselves fewer and fewer opportunities to do that, right? So, so some junior doctors and residents may fill those gaps by looking at their phone and catching up with paperwork, right? But those are tasks, and that won't engage the default mode network. Now, the default mode network is not like the, you know, the solve that will solve everything. It doesn't necessarily allow us to do all the reset. In fact, there are pathologies where people start ruminating and where you can't, you can't actually re-engage. So knowing, again, that individual level, right, of, of how to breathe and 
engage that system without falling into a pattern where the mind wandering is actually really has a negative consequence for your ability to reset is a point that I think people have to sort of explore within themselves. And, you know, and there are some people, right, that suffer from depression, for example, where they may not be able to do that in a particular context. So that's also really important to stress here. Thanks. I think what's interesting, we're going to go a little meta now because we're going to transition into reflection. So this idea that we've just been through this evolution, this immersion event, right? We've had a patient come in, we've dealt with them as a team, and and actions have been taken, decisions have been made, interactions have been had. And the question is, how will the team learn? What, What are we going to reflect on and learn so we can improve for next time? And it turns out that reflection needs to be both intentional and somewhat social. Human beings are better learners in social environments. It's why we have classrooms. It's that we actually need to make meaning collectively. We need to have an experience, then make meaning of that experience by having someone else talk to us and say, man, I didn't feel that, or I saw that, or I didn't see that. And so what's happening in these busy, busy environments, much like what Zab was talking about going to their phone or doing other things, is that the the one of the truths is, is that great teams do what are called after-action reviews or debriefs of an evolution. And what I've also found is that all bad teams either don't do them or do them poorly. And so there's a moment, even if you don't have a lot of time, where to gather the team together at the very end and just do a quick lap around the team and just go, hey, what is something not critical? And this is important because you want to leave the team with a positive outcome. Criticisms can be handled individually because it's usually an individual thing unless there's a structural problem. But it's really to let the team know what is it that we did well at and how can we sustain that? So what are the things, what are our strengths that we can build on? And how do we name that so we all see that as a truth, especially for the novice folks? And so, LA, I'm going to turn to you and sort of ask this question of how does your team reflect on their experiences and learn from them? Yeah, Preston, this is going to sound weird, but in, in the case that I just shared on the 37-year-old gentleman who got into a motor vehicle collision, the best case scenario for us to actually have a debrief or a reflection is when, unfortunately, that patient dies. That's the only time that the trauma team and the rest of the resuscitation team can actually pause and and reflect on all of this. Oftentimes, like we mentioned in the previous scenario, is that half of my team would leave and they go to the operating room and we will not see each other until a lot later. And by that time, I think it's too late to really debrief. We've done that in the past, but it's not as effective as doing it immediately. And so let's let's look at a scenario when it, it was a bad outcome and the patient actually dies. This is the moment where, as Zab was uh, alluding to earlier, there's or, or has mentioned, there's the ruminations, like the shoulda, coulda, woulda, like I wish I did this. This is the time to really surface that and, and really get some validation with everybody else. So that collective trauma that we just saw uh, and having a debrief of like, this is what went well, this is what we could have done better, really is, is much more powerful. And also for me, what I've been seeing a lot and I've been doing a lot lately is that when it is a bad outcome, just having that like golden moment of pause to recognize the humanity of that patient that just died and also the humanity of the team that we were doing something to actually to help the, the, the person have less suffering. And that, in my experience, in reflecting on all of this, has been a lot more powerful and it creates this sense of community within the teams that I work in. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's sad that the, the time that we really can truly have a reflection as a group is when really the ultimate bad thing happens. And in a way, in a sense, it's actually not a bad thing. If it's if it was like a catastrophic injury, it may be the best thing for, for that patient. However, from, from an outsider looking at this, they're like, I can't believe a doctor is saying that that is the, the, the ultimate best thing. Yeah. Zab, before I comment, is there anything you wanted to comment on that? Well, one thing that I wanted to say is that, you know, using outcomes to update predictions is, in fact, how neuroscientists call what they call learning, right? So so we actually have to do some process by that, right, which is updating our own, our assessment and comparing that to what we had predicted in order to start to incorporate that and in our subsequent action plans and decision trees. And so LA, unfortunately, right, pointed out that in emergency medicine, you're not necessarily able to do this within a team context unless the outcomes are particularly poor <laughs> in that context. But of course, the individuals are doing that process inherently, right? They are updating their own predictions. And I think that there is, you know, there's an aspect here where learning outcomes, educational outcomes in these contexts can also help strengthen that, right? So we don't do a great job of, of teaching people that, that we actually learn from our mistakes. That's well-documented in the brain. If you're always accurate, then you actually are not a very good learning machine and it requires making mistakes. But I think that the, you know, the crux of it is, is how the people around you respond to those mistakes, how that's incorporated into the social culture and to Preston's point, right? How that becomes part of, in this case, an after action review or, or an assessment process where the mistakes themselves, right? can be framed within this context of learning, even in high-performing uh, teams. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't approach the next environment with any advantage. So that's my take on that. And I think what's just to connect both yours and LA's comments as we, as we start to close this out is that the natural human need to update predictions so that we can learn in an environment like the one we're talking about, highly consequential cannot be divorced from the underlying issues of, of purpose and being of service is that in, individually, we can certainly update our predictions and we can learn. But in this kind of environment, we have to remind ourselves that the team also needs to update that within the context of, of being of service and having a deeper purpose. And this will allow us to overcome some of the mistakes and errors that we perceive we made. And that's for high-functioning folks. That's a really difficult thing. But the problem is, is that if you have a team of 10 people and everyone's going to make one mistake a day, that's 10 mistakes in your team a day. And if you have a zero tolerance for errors, that means you're getting lied to 10 times a day as a leader. We have to be able to have a context which we can have a conversation about errors and mistakes in the context of purpose and service so that we can update appropriately. And, and this is where, LA, when we think about the, the folks on your team that are having to manage this to live with those mistakes or those, those strengths, right? How do you balance that? I think when there's a, a, a bad outcome, for instance, uh, or a mistake or several series of mistakes that happen, this is where the team leader's ability to practice vulnerability, to share their own mistakes first, 
and showing their their self-compassion as well is very important. So for me, when I start talking to the team, when when we debrief, I focus on the self and then I focus on the team and then I focus on the environment. When it gets to the self, I start with, I did this. And so for instance, like a recent case is that I put in an A-line, I needed the connection for it. And I just kept on saying, hey, I I have the A-line, I have the A-line. And the third time I said, I have the A-line, I realized that I was not being effective. And so I needed to just quickly shift that communication with, I have the A-line, I need the connection. That added piece, like it took me three times to say because nobody was acknowledging it. And then I, I, I shared that with the group when we were debriefing. I said, hey, I made a mistake. I said this, I was not getting the, the, the response. I said it again and clearly was not making the right response. And so it took me the third time around and we've seen that. And so I highlighted another instance in that resuscitation that said, this is another way that I saw that happen. It's just a recognition that everybody can, can learn from my mistakes so that in the future we can overcome that. I also wanna say that I think that to end it with a positive, when we have successful resuscitations, Another thing that's important, I think, is to recognize that feeling. So I shared earlier, so let's say even if our resuscitation is very successful and then the patient goes to the operating room, I can still debrief. I can still have that moment of reflection with just the emergency medicine team, even though it's not complete. Um, And so one of the things that I've shared, for instance, for my residents is um, if it's a really, truly successful save for them and, and they should be really proud, but then they're so tough on themselves and I'm recognizing that. I said, hey, you did X, Y, Z. This is how it feels like to save a life. This is how it feels like to do that thoracotomy successfully. I want you to remember this feeling right now because there'll be many times in the future that you're not gonna be successful. I want you to remember this moment. And I think that's also very critical to highlight as well. Yeah, I think one of the things the best teams do, right, is exactly that, is that they'll turn to someone who's learning and they they will physically touch them on the shoulder and they'll anchor them in that moment and they'll say, what happened right here? This is what right feels like. This is what you should anchor to. Remember this feeling that you're embodied in right now, because this is what you want to return to. And we found in professional sports and others that that small action of the touch on the shoulder, getting in their personal space, and then getting them to step out of the flow to anchor to the feelings that they have is more likely for them to be able to return to that in the future, or at least to know when they're out of it. Exactly. Yeah. So just for our audience, as we start to close out in a moment, I'm going to ask Zab and LA to sort of collect any thoughts and also give sort of practical recommendations or one recommendation for what the teams can do on Monday in in sort of use of this or in use of getting better at this craft. And for the audience, just as a reminder, right, is that reason that the DR5 was written, just just remind everybody out there, is that you've got you've got these two staff members. And one is awesome and one is suboptimal. But the question is why? You're looking at them like, oh, Sue and Joe, Sue's amazing, Joe, uh, it's just not working out. But why? And the why matters because just being able to say they're not great isn't useful to them or to you. And so the learning diagnostic is a way of us to saying, are they detecting the threat? Do they Are they aware there's a problem? Are they recognizing which, th- which threats are important or are they focusing on the leg? Are they reacting well? Do they have the good fingers and ankles and movements and body and communication? Are they able to respond, switch to response, so step away from the immediacy of the threat and what they're doing to to open their aperture, to look around, to understand they're part of a, a larger moving social network? 
And then are they able, as they exit the, the immersion event, are they able to transition to the next team effectively through communication and relationally proficient? And are they able to reset emotionally? Are they able to gather themselves together and clear their mind and their heart to prepare for the next evolution? And then lastly, can they reflect or are they continuing to make the same mistakes over and over again? Are they able to do what we call dynamic assimilation, which is the idea of taking in feedback and then applying it to your life and to your fingers and your hands so that you do something a little bit differently next time. And that's the reason that we built this model is to help cadre better diagnose where people are doing really well, where we can say, hey, you're recognizing that really well. You've got really good skills at resetting or be able to say somebody, hey, you really need to work on and I can help you work on transitioning from reacting to the problem, which you're doing great, but you got to lift your head up every once in a while and respond to the bigger problem by having that language we're better able to take people and move them to the next level of performance within the team. But what's important to note, and this is where I'll transition back to Zav in LA, is that we're often dealing with this as individual to individual, sort of instructor to student, but we're working in a social ecosystem, a technical social ecosystem, where we've got other humans on the team, we've got technology and information, and we're within a social historical context. And all of that is playing a role in how we function against this 300 seconds. And so with that, starting with Zab, I just want you to say anything you'd like in, in response to sort of thoughts that you have about this. And then maybe one thing that you think it, a team was out there was about to go into an immersion event, what would be top of mind for you for them to consider moving forward? Yeah, that's a, a, it's a great, <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, I think one of the pieces of advice that I would make is that, you know, sometimes we overemphasize this idea of of the 300 seconds or less in this context, as if that's some kind of magic, right? Um, but the but the reality, right, is that, that that's actually a moving window. Um, and and one could also say, well, what happens, you know, after the first 300 seconds? What happens in this, you know, in the subsequent 300 seconds? Those can be just as critical. So one piece of advice that you know that I would have is to just instead of getting overwhelmed, but sometimes by that, you know, by the bigger aspect of of you know, of analyzing this really high stakes environment uh, is to step back and remember, right, that that you are optimized pretty well for your environment. I mean, we are really adaptive. And as Preston said, right, if we can start to incorporate knowledge about where our own limitations and bottlenecks are in this really complex environment, then we can work to optimize our own individual behavior, but we can also optimize the, the behavior of our team and the outcomes for our teams, right? And But it does require this idea of sometimes stepping back, right, to assess the situation from these new kinds of perspectives. And that they're, they're always going to be this sort of dynamic and moving target for the kinds of information that we are now faced with. Um, and in many ways, that's creating much more complexity in our lives rather than minimizing it, right? The reliance on the trustworthiness of data um, from, from electronic devices, right? And autonomous agents and 
on those kinds of aspects, right? That are they're shifting and changing the context in which we have to make decisions. But to remember that ultimately, right, the human is optimized for such an incredible array of performance and abilities, right? And that we can and do learn across our entire lifespan. Um, and we can change the outcomes because of that. And that's, I think, a really, really remarkable end of day story, right? Is to realize that the power is actually in the human. Thank you. LA? This has been great. I think that in medicine, we're always told to focus on the patient. In high-performance resuscitation teams, I think it's important to understand that it's more than just the patient, it's also the team. And if you break down the resuscitation uh, with the, uh, the DR5, it's, it's important to recognize that many of this has to do with understanding the team dynamics, understanding the importance of communication, that pre-briefing, and also the reflection in the ends. And that's how we can continue to do this and adapt to the different challenges that we're uh, experiencing and also becoming a better team. High-performance resuscitation teams, it's not always going to be that great team cohesion that uh, we envision it. And yet the, the better ones are able to learn, adapt, uh, and, and really design itself to, to be a lot more resilient to the changes that we're dealing with. We have the ability to control ourselves. We have the ability to control our breathing. We have the ability to control our mindsets. And also we have the ability to influence the rest of the team to get into that mindset of uh, understanding the importance of the team dynamics and being kind to each other as we're trying to take care of other patients. I think that's how we are hopefully going to address the residue that stays with us as we do each of these resuscitations over the years. Thank you both so much. And, and I think I'll just basically summarize what you both said in, in from my perspective, which is I was I was raised in a culture where when I would join a team, whether it was emergency medical response or an expedition or whatever, I was often told, Preston, just shut up and watch and you'll figure it out. And, and what I want to just sort of share with everybody is that the complexity of the environments that we now work in doesn't really tolerate that modality very well anymore. We have to actually be a lot more intentional about our own performance and our team performance. And, and as we always say, we can't fix what we can't talk about. In order to talk about it, we need a language. And this is a simple way, not simple, but it's a way for us to develop a shared language so that we can start looking at some of this stuff so everybody can get better. Because at the end of the day, what we want is we want the patients to survive and we want us to grow old with our family and our marriage and our liver and our life, right? And so how do we sustain ourselves so that we can have the American pursuit of happiness, which is, should be our goal, and look after the people that we encounter? And in order to do that and do it well, we've got to start being intentional and stop with the John Wayne stuff like, oh, they didn't figure it out. Well, how were they going to figure it out? Like, we should help. And so with that, I, I'll, I'll leave it open for either of you to make any comments, but I'm extremely grateful for your time. You're very busy people, and I'm really grateful, and I think the audience will really enjoy. I genuinely enjoyed what happened. I think they will as well. So any last closing thoughts from either of you? This was fantastic. I really enjoyed it, and I look forward to our next conversations. Absolutely. Yes, I echo that. I really love, I, would, I was writing notes on what I was going to say next and I was like, oh, you just covered it. So I love the syncing of our conversations. It was great. Thank that you. That is awesome. Well, thank you everybody. And thank you for attending the TeamCast. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. 
For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at Janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.